A man gets trapped in Antarctica for an entire winter and makes a horrifying discovery. And then we travel to Italy to find a long-dead culture that was based around one thing, fighting witches and saving humanity. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. Let's go ahead and get started with our first topic. Suit up, guys. That's us buttoning up our buttons. Sounds suspiciously like getting inside of some sort of military vehicle. Put on your parkas, guys. We are headed off to Antarctica. Also, put on, like, pants and stuff, too. Don't just wear a parka and think you're going to be totally protected. We're headed off to Antarctica, and we're headed off to Antarctica in the year 1911, so it's even colder back then. I remember on a long-ago episode, I said, I imagine that everything was hotter during Bible times. I don't I had no, like, scientific reason for that. I just figured that things were hotter in the past. And I also believe that things were colder in the past as well. So a cold winter in 1911 would be colder than a cold winter today. And a hot summer in 1911 would be even hotter. I don't know why I think that. But I do. And you can't change my mind, science. It's 1911. It's a super, super cold winter. And it's in Antarctica. We're in Camp Adair, Antarctica. So we're walking with our snowshoes. And our poles. And we get in. We're knocking on the door. They don't get many visitors at Camp Adair, and they open it. <laughs> Spooky, oily door. Not oily door. Door needs to be oiled. <laughs> so we walk into Camp Adair, and we drop our gear. We meet Robert Falcon Scott. It's a pretty dope name. He's in charge of this expedition. Now, he's not going to be joining us on this mission. He's off doing something else for whatever reason. Like, he's in charge of the overall expedition, but he's not at this camp at this time. So we're like, he's like, see ya. He's like, taken off. Grabs our gear. We're like, no, no, we need that to survive. And he goes off on his adventure. We are now stuck there with George Murray Levick. Not as cool as a name. But he's actually going to turn out to be a pretty intriguing guy. He's sitting there with his spectacles on, writing in his notebook. Big old nerd. Wish we could have hung out with the Falcon, but instead we're sitting there with Levick. He's like, gentlemen, I'm so glad you've joined us. Apparently, he's from a Hammer horror film. He's writing stuff down. He's like, I've been checking out the penguins. We've been doing a lot of penguin research here. Now, this group was dedicated to, like, exploring parts of Antarctica. It's 1911, so there's a lot of it that's unexplored. There's still a lot of it unexplored today, but especially back then. Now, Levick was actually also a, uh, he's an explorer, but he was also a surgeon, so that's cool. I think that's why they brought him along. And a zoologist, which explains why he loves penguins so much. And there's five other dudes there that don't really matter. There's us, five other guys, that I'm sure they matter to their families. I'm sure they're really good young men. But for the sake of the story, I'm not even going to bother reading their names. So it's us, Levick, and five other dudes hanging out. And this winter gets so bad, these dudes get stuck in their camp in Antarctica. They're trapped in Antarctica. Now, while we're trapped there, Levick goes, you know what? Since we can't... His voice changed. His voice is normal now. You know what? Since we're trapped here, I'm going to just steady these penguins all day long. 
And we're like, no, dude, you have to, like, cook food. You have to help, like, get firewood. He's like, he's ignoring us. He has beaks. He has penguin beaks plugged in his ears so he can't hear us. He's studying them. Up until 2012, his was the only close-up study of penguins. You're like, Jason, seriously? Is that what this this segment's about? A guy studying penguins? Well, hold on, hold on. You gotta have faith in me, right? So these guys are called Adelaide penguins. They're named after some dude's like ex-wife or something like that. Or maybe his current wife. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. They're just called Adelaide penguins. Why would you name something after your ex-wife? Why would you name like a beautiful bird after your ex-wife? I can imagine like naming some sort of moss or fungus after her. But I want to be like, oh, look at these cute little guys. I will name you, fill in the name of one of my many exes that I'm not going to put so she can't sue me. Anyways. Uh, he the, he didn't name them. They, he didn't know Adelaide. Someone else named these Adelaide penguins. And he was observing them up close. And we're all trapped here for one year from 1911 to 1912. These explorers could not move off of this place they're at. It's called Inexpressible Island is where it, and it's just a collection of boulders. It's barely it. I mean, technically, it's island. Yes, because it's surrounded by water, but it's not like comfy like sand. Or like snow, like soft snow you can lay around it and make snow angels. It's just boulders. Just tiny little boulders. So we're trapped on this island and he's taking notes of penguins. We're doing our best to survive. And we keep asking him, hey, hey, Levick, how's that uh, note taking going? You know, you know, we did provide food and shelter for us today. We at least want to hear a good story. And he'd be like, uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I saw today. What? You spend all day long talking to penguins, hanging out, and you're not going to... He's like, you don't want to know. Turn the lantern down, light goes out, and we just hear him in the darkness. No, not again. I don't want to... I don't want to see it again. I don't know. Every time I close my eyes, I see the penguins. What? Now, we end up eventually leaving an inexpressible island. We all do. In 1912... Were able to be rescued, and here is, and here's a quote. So after they were escaped, back then, like Antarctic explorers and North Arctic explorers were huge heroes of society. They were, they were basically the, that era's equivalent of an astronaut. They were going someplace where man never thought we would go. So there is a lot of work done about these guys. And here's a quote from one of these books about Levick and his journeys and how they survived. They here's the quote: They ate blubber. Cooked with blubber, had blubber lamps, their clothes and gear were soaked with blubber. I'm just imagining the clumps. I'm just imagining their clothes are just like packed full of whale blubber and they're like, Heidi, Heidi, ho, is studying some penguins today. They're walking through, they have to make the shelter super big for their giant fat suits of whale blubber. Blubbery clothes are cold. This quote continues. And theirs were soon so torn as to afford little protection against the wind. And so stiff with blubber, they would stand up by themselves. And you know they were doing that. You know, like, as they were slowly becoming delusional from the freezing cold and the isolation. They were putting on puppet shows. They were just having their fat suits stand there in the darkness. They're all naked in the corner. They're like, look at how funny the suits look. And then they said that they'd have to use penguin skins as sandpaper to rub the clothes to kind of, like, help scrape too much. Now, they weren't, to be fair, they weren't actually sticking the blubber inside of their clothes. They were, like, coating their clothes in blubber, but then the blubber would get so stiff, they'd have to scrape off the blubber 
and they would use knives, but sometimes they would just use penguin skins, apparently. So they could bend their arms and legs again, because their suits would freeze. It'd be like if you were in a mech suit, and you were in the middle of a battle, and your power went out. I guess it's absolutely the complete opposite of that. When you jump out of a mech suit to repair it, you don't instantly freeze to death. So they would have to use penguin skins to try to scrape it off. And then this is a great quote. This is a great quote. As we go on to say that, you know, Inexpressible Island is just a bunch of boulders. It's just a bunch of rocks and pebbles and boulders and rounded stones. Imagine sleeping. Imagine living on rounded stones for a year. This is this Levitt guy is quite witty. They asked him about Inexpressible Island. And here's his quote. The road to hell might be paved with good intentions. But it seemed probable that hell itself would be paved something after the style of Inexpressible Island. Burn, Satan. Burn, literal. And uh, that's a figurative burn. He gets rescued. Everyone gets rescued off Inexpressible Island. And then he's sent to fight in World War I. So he's in the Navy in World War I, dodging U-boats, going on adventures. World War II rolls around. He's 65 years old. And he goes, you know what? Let's do this. They're not going to let him go on the front lines, but they do. This is very interesting because, you know, you go where you're needed. He starts training people in guerrilla warfare, and he specifically training them in survival techniques. Now, I'm, I imagine that he, he's a 65-year-old man. They brought all these young dudes into this war room, and he's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. I've survived the most hostile environment known to man, so I'm going to help you. Let's say that you're trapped in the middle of nowhere. Nazis all around you. First off, grab some blubber. And they're like, wait, what? What? We're fighting in North Africa. He's like, find it. If you want to survive, you'll find the blubber. And they're like, that's not going to work, sir. Find the blubber. All of his techniques involve, first off, he's like, you want to help the French resistance? Get some beached whales. Crash them into Normandy. That was the original plan for D-Day. They're all going to sail up on giant whales. But he actually was involved in a very popular urban legend for a long time too he was one of the guys who was part of this plan called operation tracer and it was to build a giant option not giant but i mean big enough for a couple people an observation post in the rock of gibraltar and so if the nazis ever took gibraltar i can't really say that we would have an observation post there it was basically remember that episode of star trek you're like no right when i said that half of you guys are like i i know i'm not gonna remember this there was an episode of star trek where starfleet built a hidey hole in a rock overseeing a village because they wanted to spy on a pre-warp civilization. And Data was hanging out in there. Or maybe he wasn't there yet. But anyways, there was... Yeah, so there was a rock with a hidey hole in it that was covered up by a holographic projector. And one day the holographic projector failed. And the people looked up and they saw like... It was just like a group of like Renaissance technology level people. And they look up one day and they see in this mountain overlooking their village a high-tech room with a bunch of people in uniforms and then it flashed back and this guy attributed to being a religious vision that he saw a vision of god not the mariah carey song but that he started writing that song after he after he saw starfleet and starfleet had to basically go down and disguise himself as people to convince them that that wasn't a religious thing that it was just like the dude was going nuts or something like that it was the same thing, but no Starfleet, no holograms. Now, what's funny is that for decades, people, locals believed that there was actually a hidey hole carved in the Rock of Gibraltar. 
And others were like, no, no, that's impossible. That never happened. And then, like, in the late 90s, early 80s, it came forward that, yes, that was true. There is still a room there that was carved out that you can, I think you can go visit it now. So weird is one of those local legends that turned out to be true. So he was part of that plan. The whole place was just encased in blubber. In case the Nazis showed up, they would just, whoa, slip and slide. I don't know if blubber is slippery or bouncy or both, but we should start using it to do McDonald Playhouses. The segment's going on way too long. The point is, his his steady, this is the point of this whole story. I just thought all that was interesting backstory. The penguin research that he had done, he wrote out, and he began writing it in Greek. Because he's like, no one can ever know what I'm seeing these penguins doing. He's writing in Greek. He never wanted anyone to just stumble across it and go, well, golly, good thing I took that Greek course because now I can read this horrible, horrible thing. He wrote it so the, the common person could not read his findings. When he originally came back, he showed it to, like, other bird people. <laughs> they're like, they're like caw, caw. there's, like, a secret village in England. I think this guy was from England. I should have said that earlier. That's why he was always digging around the Rock of Gibraltar. He, um, was he from England? Maybe he was from America. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter at this point in the story. He goes to his other bird people, people who steady birds, not literal bird people. And he says, let me show you. You know how to speak Greek, right? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, totally. I'm a bird person. He's, they're reading the book, and they're like, oh, my God. And we're not going to publish this. And he's like, that's what I thought. I just want to let you guys know that I was the first person to ever really study these penguins up close. And they're like, you are, and it's good that you are. We are not going to publish this. A hundred years pass, and it still hadn't been published. But people are still kind of talking about it in the bird community. It's a bird thing. You wouldn't understand. And this is what, now it's been published. It's actually a book that's come out called A Polar Affair. And this is what we've discovered in this book. Adelaide penguins are, one of the first things he notices is that there's a lot of gay penguins. And that's pretty common nowadays. You're like, what? That was a long build up to gay penguins. I saw that on the news the other day. And that's not it. So he's note, noting that penguins are, are having sex with the same sex. He's like, oh, that's shocking in 1911. They don't have the news. Then he's like, okay, well, I'll put that down. I'm sure that'll get published. That'll be... Oh, my... Wait, what's going on? He has to pull out his binoculars. These penguins often... Sorry about... (laughs) So yesterday's story was about animal sex as well. This is not an ongoing theme. It was just the way these guys kind of worked out. He noticed that Adelaide penguins have a tendency towards gang rape. So penguins... (laughs) I don't have to explain what that is. Unfortunately, that's a common term. Penguins uh, will tend to team up and take down a female. Maybe a male. Doesn't specify. Just gang rape. Doesn't really matter what the genders involved are. Uh, Adelaide penguins are known to have sex with uh, chicks. Like baby penguins. So you can understand the the reason why this stuff has been covered up for 100 years. But that's not even the worst. It's not even the worst. They prostitute each other. So I've, let's say I'm a big buff penguin. Penguins penguins get the best mates because they build the best houses, right? And I'd have this awesome house and I'd have this hot penguin, babe. And you don't have as awesome as a house, but you want to like bang my wife? You bring me pebbles so I can build a bigger house. So you come, you drop off a couple pebbles at my feet. 
and then I will push my wife towards you, and then you bang my wife. And I use your pebbles to make my house bigger to get more wives, and then I prostitute them as well. And this is all like 1911. This guy is the most scandalous thing he'd probably seen at this point was a woman's calves. And he's watching these this big old pimp penguin pimping out his wives. And he said sometimes the women, after having sex, would jump up. The women penguins would jump up, grab the pebbles for themselves, and run off. And the other penguins would be chasing it. Which is something that, unfortunately, like happens in real life. Not unfortunate that prostitutes steal pimp money. Unfortunate, like, the situation exists at all. I think it's fascinating because that seems like something that's so human. Again, not the prostitutes stealing the money. Not just that detail. The prostitution in general. Is, I always thought it would be something that was a human thing. But no. Right now, as you're listening to this story... There is a penguin being prostituted by her husband, and she's eyeing those pebbles. He's ready to bolt once it's over. And, again, to make things worse, he also observed penguins having sex with dead dead penguins up to a year after their death. So it's not like they didn't know the penguin was dead. Penguin, it's not like you're walking through a blizzard with your wife, and then she gets, like, frozen into a a popsicle, and you don't realize that, and then you're like, hmm, and then you start banging the popsicle. Your wife's been dead for a year. Like, you are very well aware that this is not a living penguin. Now, when I read that, I thought, that's impossible. How do you have sex with something that's been dead for a year? But then I thought, it's freezing quite so sorry for this episode, guys. It's it's so cold that the penguin's body would would not dissolve or decay, right? It would just lay there. And so it would look... Okay, let me back up. That's not justifying penguin necrophilia at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that now I understand how it's physically possible. Because you couldn't have sex with a year-old corpse in, like, Louisiana. Because there'd be nothing left. It'd be banging a skeleton. <laughs> okay, we're done. We're done. We're done. Anyways, that is the story of George Levick. You guys are all, after you guys are done throwing up, you're like, uh, thanks for telling us that story, Jason. Let's go ahead. I thought it was fascinating. You can read the book. You're like, I don't want to read that book. The book, A Polar Affair, is out. I just think it's interesting that you have, a, first off, penguins look cuddly, too. You have a study that was basically banned by science. No one disputed whether or not it was true. They just thought it was too scandalous for people to know about. If we had known about all this stuff back in 1912, 1913, if it had been published right away, would our views of penguins be different? Would they have made movies like Happy Feet or March of the Penguins or The Penguins of Madagascar? Really makes you think about all those dudes. Really, I mean, like, are they, are, is March of the Penguins, was there prostitution going on, like, right off a of camera? Was, who was the guy who did the voice for that, Morgan Freeman? Well, if Morgan Freeman was involved, there probably was some prostitution involved. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. How much time do we have? <laughs> we spent so much time talking about penguins. Let's see. We are leaving behind Antarctica. You're like, thank God. And then we let's hop in the carpenter copter. It's been retrofitted to withstand cold weather. We're jumping inside. We're saying goodbye to Levick. He's like, no, save me, save me. 
a bunch of penguins as we're taking off. We see a bunch of penguins waddling towards him. He's like, no, no, save me. We just see his hand sticking out of a pile of uh, very strong penguins holding him down. Apparently, these penguins do attack humans. They hit hit him with their flippers. We're going to 1966 Italy, Italia, University of Bologna. Change the name. <laughs> Change the name. I get it that it used to be like Bologna was probably like a, um, or Blogna, whatever. I'm sure it was, it used to be like a really cool place. But once it gets attributed to a lunch meat, just change your name. If all of a sudden they came out with a lunch meat called America, I think eventually we would just have to change your name. Baloney. That's ridiculous. Anyways, university. Could you imagine getting a decree from the University of Baloney? Like, it's dumb. It's, it's dumb. Right now there's a listener in Italy he's tearing up his degrees. Like, oh, mechanical engineering. He's right. I'm useless because I have a degree from a lunch meet. University of Bologna. There's a dude named Carlo Ginsberg. He discovers these old trial transcripts. He's a historian. So he's digging around in the history wing of Nerd Central. And he discovers these trial transcripts from the 16th and 17th century. Which trials? And it's funny because other people were super jealous of him. They said this is a once in a lifetime find. This is what historians love. They're nerds, and they love discovering stuff no one's ever heard about. He finds these old witch trials. And what he, as he's going through those, what he keeps coming across is the term Benendanti. Benendanti. Now, Benendanti, in modern times, meant and means, but for Carlo especially, meant witch. But as he's digging through this, he's making some pretty insane discoveries. Benendanti, yes, means witch. Now. But it used to refer to a subculture of people who were all witches. It would be the equivalent of if you found out, like, the term cut. So, the people just kind of thought it was a slang term for a witch, but it actually referred to a group of people that no longer existed. So, we started really, really digging into this. So, we're going, as he's, like, looking through his books, we're going to run and we're going to jump over his shoulder and we're going to fly into the book. It's a power we have now. We're going back in time to the 16th century. We land. I land in a big, soft, comfy hay bale. You land in an empty hay cart. So we take it away, use the cart, take you to the hospital, get your get your back repaired. And now we're both good. You said I could have planned it a little bit better. There was another hay cart right next to that one, but hey, what are you going to do? We're now walking through 16th century Italy. And we're going to meet some of these Benendotti people. They all have this little necklace with this little sack around their neck. Hey, what's in the what's in the sack? What's in the sack? And they go, oh, it's my call. See, Benendotti were basically... You could be born anywhere in northern Italy and become a Benendotti. But you had to be born with an amniotic sack on your face. Like It's called a call. And so that means that you were be able to, like, Go to the other side, or you have these special powers. It was super rare. I think it was like 1 in 80,000 births or something like that. But And I don't know if people still get them. But the way you're born is your ambiotic sac is born around your face. And when you're born, they peel it off. Now, that's an old folktale thing. That's popular all over Europe. A lot of times people 
would buy these sacks from babies. Not the babies themselves. They'd go to the mom and be like, hey, you got any sacks for me? And the mom's like, do I have sacks for you? And then she like opens up a thing and it's all these like jellyfish type skins. And sailors would buy them and lawyers would buy them and soldiers would buy them. It basically guaranteed good luck. In northeastern Italy, people who are born with them, they would save them. They'd put them in a pouch around their neck. And around the time they were 20, someone would come up to them with also a little pouch around their neck and say, hey, you're one of them cowboys, right? Yeehaw! And they're like, yes, I am. And they'd get recruited into becoming a Benindati. So imagine, like, you know, Gypsy is like an ethnic group. It was kind of the same type of subculture, but it wasn't. I mean, I guess they were all Italian and was all kind of in a particular region, but you, it wasn't a bloodline thing. You just had to be born with a call on your face and then recruited by another Benindati. And you were taught the powers of white witchery. Benindati back then literally meant good, the good walkers. Because you had the witches and the warlocks who were destroying the countryside, but you were born with this call on your face. You were born with a destiny. You've been recruited now to fight witches. How do you fight witches? Well, this is interesting because yesterday we did the story about the uh, Theus of Cantlebrun, who was the werewolf who would go down to hell, bring barley back that was stolen to promise a good harvest. That's exactly what these guys did. Now, Theus was actually, I think, a hundred years after the bulk of these stories, and he was in Germany. All this stuff is happening in Italy. But... The two stories are kind of connected in, in the traditions being the same. But the Benindati, it's four nights a year. They were able to travel to hell and fight Satan and fight witches and bring back barley and grain and stuff that had been stolen by the evil witches on earth. But when they weren't going to hell to doing this, there was a constant battle between the good witches and the bad witches. And what would happen was the male Benindati at night would fall asleep and they would turn into spirit animals. So they could turn into like a deer or a bird. Some of them turn into a butterfly. Great combat form, jerk. What are you going to do? How are you going to fight a witch as a butterfly? You know the other Ben and Dottie were super mad when Jerry kept showing up as a pretty butterfly. They're like, dude, get something with antlers or claws or something. He's like, no, I'm going to sneak into their fortress and I'm going to spy on them. They're like, dude, it's the middle of winter, in the middle of night. People are going to notice a super colorful butterfly flying around their evil castle. And when they weren't, like, they would turn into these magical monsters or animals, probably a better term, and they would go and they would attack witches. Or sometimes they would just run through town and beat up witches. Now, the witches also were totally aware of this war. And they knew each other. So, the, And this is all, so back in 1966, this dude is finding these trial transcripts detailing all this stuff and he's like this is a huge part of like italian history i mean it's not like as huge as you know rome but it's still like a part of something that was going on which i guess is the definition of all history but he's like I, nobody ever knew any of this except at the time so that was a weird segue we're back in time now the benedotti knew who the evil witches were and the evil witches knew who the benedotti was it was this hidden war that was going on and they would just beat the crap out of each other they would use rods and they would beat each other in the middle of the streets. And then someone would come along and be like, why are you guys fighting? And they wouldn't say. They'd be like, uh, he is a jerk. And the other guy's like, well, I'm pretty sure that he turned into a butterfly and was spying on my wife taking a shower. I mean, he's a jerk too. So they were totally hiding this war. But 
it, people are getting beat up. It was the sharks and the jets, but with magical bat powers and butterflies. So eventually, though, you had this little thing going on at the time called the Inquisition, where they were hunting witches. That's what we were always told, right? The Inquisition was about hunting witches and heretics. So people start going, there's the Roman Inquisitions going on in Italy, and people start going to the Inquisitors, and they're like, dude, you won't, but you want to find witches, right? There's a bunch of them up north, a bunch of them in north, northeastern Italy. The Inquisitors go up there. And they start interrogating these people because, you know, they're wearing little sacks around their neck and, you know, they'd make folk remedies and stuff like that. But they weren't telling people straight on that, yeah, I can turn into a butterfly in the middle of the night. But people kind of figured something was up. Inquisitors show up, begin interviewing these dudes. And they're like, so what's going on? And they're like, okay, listen, yeah. Four nights a year, I can turn into a a goat and I'll go down to hell and I'll like poke Satan in the butt and sell a bunch of barley, bring it back up, save the harvest. We do that. And then like during the rest of the year, we just kind of find witches in the streets and just <laughs> beat the tar out of them. And, you know, we take a couple licks ourselves, but we're good guys. We do practice witchery, but we're the good walkers. And this is why I was born with this column of faith. And the inquisitors are kind of hearing all this stuff. And they're like, this is the, <laughs> the dumbest thing we've ever heard. So, it's really weird. The Inqu- the Roman Inquisition pretty much makes a decision to leave them alone. They kept arresting them. They'd interrogate them and say, this is stupid. And they'd let them go. I think a couple of them got tortured, but there was no like mass slaughter of these people. And it got to the point where the Roman Inquisition just... This is their thing. I don't know if this was the case throughout the whole period of Europe during the Inquisition, but the Roman Inquisition, they wanted to find religious people who were heretics, Christians who were heretics, who were using the pulpit or using pieces of Christianity to to pervert it as a whole, because that was a threat to their power structure. These guys were not a threat, even though they were witches and they were practicing magic, which is against the Bible. They didn't see them as a political threat. So it wasn't worth their time. And it got to the point that people would come to the Inquisitors and go, hey, hey, there's some Benendottis over there that are like flying around. Not literally, but pretending to fly around or they're throwing rods at people. And the person who reported them would get in trouble. Because the Roman Inquisitors got so tired because eventually there were so many reports of these guys. Because they began to come more and more open. That the Roman Inquisitors, would they'd throw you in jail if you reported it just for wasting their time. So... Why did the Benendotti disappear? If it wasn't because of the... Ro- Your first thought is, once the Roman Inquisitors show up in the story, oh, they just all got massacred. That's not what happened. They ended up falling apart the way almost every religion does. It's a fascinating story of human history in a nutshell. Microhistory is actually the term. You had the Benendotti who were waging this hidden war against the evils of the world. And they begin to become more public because they're being dragged to trial by the Roman Inquisitors. But the investigations eventually end, but the rumors of their abilities don't. So they become more and more open and brazen about, oh yeah, I'm a Benedotti. It's no longer super secret. Yes, I fight for the good. I fight for you, dear villager. And you, and you, and you. And then a next generation pops up. And they go, how can we make money doing this? How can we monetize this war of good against evil? 
So they begin charging money for blessings and charms and cures, which all it used to be free because it was part of the war, the war effort. Now they're charging money for it. Oh, you need a good harvest? Well, I'm going to need some of that scratch. I'm going to need some of that good stuff to go to hell to get back some of that sweet, sweet barley you need that got stolen by those witches. And that goes on for a while. And then eventually people go, oh, these dudes are scam artists. And they alert the authorities and the authorities who don't care about the witching and the... I mean, they care about Satan and witchcraft and stuff like that, but they've pretty much left these guys alone. They think it's all just folktales. However, they do have laws on the books about stealing and fraud and ripping people off and all of this stuff. So then the investigators come in, they arrest the leadership. Before, there wasn't even a power structure to the Benindani. It was just something that was there. But once money got involved, you had a hierarchy set up. And the top leaders got arrested. People went to jail. People got sued. Or the equivalent back then of being sued had to give money back. It was this whole thing. And the culture just died out. So it wasn't a dramatic battle of good versus evil. It wasn't all the Benindotti went to hell for one last major push against Satan. It was human greed that ended up destroying a culture that may have actually been going to war with real-life witches. And they've been lost to history. If this young man hadn't found those historical trial records before they rotted away or simply got misplaced in some library, they would have completely disappeared to history. Ben and Dottie would have just been a term for a witch. Nobody really would have known where the term came from. So that's the story of the Ben and Dottie. A group of people born with unique abilities who were recruited into a secret war, who fought evil on the behalf of all humans, and then eventually became corrupt and evil themselves, became the instrument of their own downfall, and disappeared from the history books. Did this group actually have magical powers? Did they travel to hell to fight Satan? It's doubtful. But who knows? If it was a harmless group, of wackos and lunatics, they wouldn't have disappeared from human history. I think people would have held them up to go, this is a cult. This is what happens when you follow a cult. It's just another example of people having dumb superstitions. Let's not forget about them so we don't, so we don't replicate their mistakes. However, if there was truth to this story, the dark forces of the world wouldn't want people to know that they were once fought toe-to-toe with a group of white witches. They would rather you be afraid of all magic than to believe that some people can wield it against them and against their dark master. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Bye.